What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead on The Exchange. Do you sell? And if so, what do you sell right now? Stocks are pulling back today. The Nasdaq hit the hardest, but that's because it's also had the biggest bounce back. Apple, for instance, is up 32% in two months and only 5% below its record highs. But one technician says the run is done and we will debate. And we try to make sense of some conflicting economic data. Some numbers pointing to a slowdown, others signaling full-on recession, and still others just keep trucking along. How will the Fed, with those minutes coming up, react to it all? And in earnings exchange, we'll preview BJ's, Kohl's, and outside of retail, Cisco. They're all looming, and we'll look at how to trade them. But first, to Dominic Chu with today's market numbers. Okay, so Kelly, it was a little bit, it was going to be bad in the beginning, but it got progressively worse throughout the late morning. But now we're kind of in the middle of the trading range, albeit still to the downside. Now, the Dow Industrials are down 176 points. That's roughly half a percent decline there. Three quarters of a percent for the broader S&P 500, 42.72, the last trade there. If you look at the Nasdaq composite, though, that's been the epicenter of a lot of the volatility uh, today, certainly. At the highs of the session, we were still, though, down 94 points at the lows of the session, down 239 to kind of give you an idea of the trading range so far. So in the middle of that range-ish, but tilting a little bit more towards the lows of the session right now. So keep an eye on that NASDAQ composite trade. Speaking of the composite trade, there are a handful of stocks. We know it's a market cap weighted index that are contributing the most to the declines here. If you take a look at Amazon.com, down 2.5%, NVIDIA off over 3%, Two and a half percent declines for Meta. Tesla's down fractionally and four percent declines for Texas Instruments. These five stocks collectively have shaved nearly a third of those losses. Right. So most of these names that are up here right now, these five in particular, are responsible to closely one third of all the losses in the Nasdaq so far today. So keep an eye on those mega cap tech names. And then if you're looking for the thematic stock stories of the day, it's got to be the mixed picture that we are seeing on the retail side of things. Target off its session lows, still off by, down by 2%. Lowe's and TJX companies both in the green so far in a down day. Target, some of the expectations around profits not met. It was a big miss there. Revenue's roughly in line, but it's the profit margin, the operating margin story for the second half of the year that has some traders a little bit more optimistic on that Target story. Lowe's and TJX both come out with better than expected profits, but revenues missed a little bit on the mark there overall. So keep an eye on those particular moves in Lowe's and TJX. And by the way, TJX is up despite cutting its full year forecast, but there are some folks out there who believe maybe the worst is over, so we'll keep an eye on that retail trade. Kel, I'll send things back over to you. All right, Dom, thank you very much. Speaking of which, there's been a big rift in the data lately, and the big question is what it means for markets and the Fed. On the consumer front, spending is pretty strong still, but sentiment is terrible. As for housing, activity is collapsing, but prices are still pretty high. On the industrial side, the Empire Manufacturing Survey was awful, but the production data overall yesterday was pretty strong. Here to help make sense of it all is David Zervos. He is the chief market strategist at Jefferies. All right, Dave, the floor is yours. Uh, what do you think is really going on here? Well, 
Kelly, I think, you know, we are in an economy that in real terms is going nowhere. We've been treading water all year. We have no real growth. Uh, lots of people like to call that a recession. Some people don't. Uh, we've added a lot of jobs uh, and we haven't got a lot for it, which means productivity's taken it on the chin after an incredible run in productivity. Um, but uh, in general, I think that the, the storyline is one of a, of a world where the Fed has some comfort in this particular structure of the labor market so that it can continue to fight inflation going into the end of the year. And I think they're going to do just that. I think they wanted to engineer a slowdown. They have engineered a slowdown. They've been successful at it. They're going to keep doing it. And we're going to see inflation slowly come down. Maybe not as fast as some people had hoped for, but it's going to it's going to slowly come. So let's talk about the biggest risk you see here, which is one we maybe could get some clues about in the minutes uh, next hour. You think the biggest risk is that they accelerate the balance sheet unwind towards the end of this year or in early next year. Explain that. So, Kelly, I mean, we're we're sitting here with a 10-year note yield at 2.9, just under 2.9%. We we haven't really been able to take that 10-year note yield up very high. Um, and that's really what drives a lot of the uh, the tightening of policy. It's not what you're doing with short rates as much as what's happening with the long end of the yield curve. So I think the Fed is going to get increasingly frustrated as it takes rates up to 35 to 4%, which I think it wants to do by the end of the year, when the 10-year note yield is here or possibly even lower, and we have a very inverted yield curve. And I think they'll look at this big balance sheet of theirs, this $8 to $9 trillion behemoth that was a $4 trillion behemoth before COVID, and say, you know what? If you guys want some of this stuff, we'll give it to you. And uh, we'll get a little bit more. Uh, we'll get a little bit more mortgage securities floating into the market. Maybe some treasuries, but probably just uh, additional mortgages. And I think that could be a catalyst for uh, one, a little bit of a spike up in yields. I don't think it'll last that long uh, because it'll be a tightening. It'll be. Uh, but that. That, oh, I'm glad that you brought this up, and it, it gets into one of the biggest anxiety points for the market, which is that in a couple of weeks we see the accelerated balance sheet unwind begin. But everyone's talking about this, or, or to your point, saying, you know, look, more of this selling could happen in the future, and yet yields, I mean, they don't look to me like they're coming unglued. We should be pricing this in now if it's going to be even a potential concern, right? And, and things look very calm and orderly and well-behaved. Well, at the end of the day, the long end of the yield curve, Kelly, as much as we want to talk about it being driven by supply, 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 and traders on desks love to talk about supply, the reality is it's really driven by inflation expectations. Yeah. And the Fed is tightening. When the Fed is selling assets, it's also tightening, and it is lowering inflation expectations. So ultimately, you've got this force of supply operating against this inflation expectation curtailment. And, and I think the inflation expectation curtailment will win. Um, that, that's kind of what the long end is telling you. Now, the initial response probably will be um, not so great for the long end if they did this. And it could obviously feed back into a negative uh, impact for equity short term. But I, I don't see those as long-lived events. Actually, Dave, if, if you could, let me just go to Rick Santelli for a moment because this fits right into our discussion. We just had the 20-year auction. He just gave it a D minus. So before I come to you for a final thought, uh, let me bring in Rick Santelli from the CME. And Rick, give us some detail on this. Yeah, you know, I, I tried to be generous and only give it a D, but it, it's just horrible. And the most horrible part of it was the yield. 3.38% is the yield. 20-year bonds, 15.15 billion of them. The problem is, is that the one issue market was trading about three and a half basis points lower than that. 
And 3.38 was the high one issued yield of the session. So ultimately, we had to have such a low yield, or excuse me, low price, high yield to move the paper in this Dutch auction. So let's go through the internals. D minus the grade, 2.30 bid to cover. That in itself isn't very good. It's the lowest since October 21. Indirect and direct metrics were close to 10 auction average. The dealers took 14.7%, Kelly. That's the highest amount since February. So no matter how you slice it, we know that long maturities are going to continue to have buyers for the most part. Just look at what's going on in Europe. But on this particular auction, whether it's been recent spat of data, whether it's yields in Europe going wild to the upside, or it's the Fed minutes coming up, I'm not sure which, if not all of the above, but there was definitely an investor uh, avoidance of the 20-year bond. And Rick, we Back know it's you. the least liquid, so maybe it's not the best barometer, but to the point Dave was just making, what are the traders saying about all of the balance sheet runoff that's about to accelerate and could even accelerate further in the months to come? Yeah, and that's why I bring up this balance sheet, and I find a lot of inertia on our discussions because it's dribbling out. The pace of the drainage going on with the balance sheet is really tiny, and traders are watching it every Thursday afternoon to monitor it. And the reason it's so important, and the reason there's so much intense discussion on it, is because when it starts to get a more rapid pace and we start to see a bigger drop, I'm sure that's going to have a bigger effect on the market. All right. So in agreement there, Rick, thank you very much, Rick Santelli, as we turn back to Dave Zervos. And Dave, maybe you could leave uh, stock market investors who are getting a little nervous, right? The, the snapback rally has looked pretty good, you know, ever since the Fed's first big uh, rate hike. Where do we go from here? <clears throat> so I think one important point, Kelly, that we've been talking about since that, that's, that sort of aggressive Fed move to go 75 is that Fed credibility is very strong. As much as people want to beat them up and talk about how they messed up, um, everything in the market points to a credible fight against inflation, whether it's the dollar, gold, crypto, the curve, the long end. Um, that's just where we sit. So <clears throat> I think that's an important stepping off point. I think they'll add to that credibility today at two o'clock. I don't think they're going to be too, too hawkish with us. The market seems to think we're going to get an aggressive Fed that wants to push back on this. I think they'll be aggressive, but moderately aggressive. <clears throat> and the market should take it okay, given what we have with expectations. But we've come a long way. We have a tightening. And as Rick was talking about, the balance sheet is really just about to kick in in the fall. And just like QE worked uh, really positively to, to kind of be an elixir for pain, when you take the QT on, it's, uh, it's going to bring some pain back. And I think that's a risk for the market as we go into the end of the year. I don't see a big downdraft. I'm not looking for the big crash. Haven't been all year. You know, but I think ending the year somewhere around down 8 to down 12%, which is not far from where we are, is probably a reasonable guess. And maybe we have another spike up to 4,400 or 4,500 in the S&P. Maybe we get another drop down to 3,900 as the Fed does some contortions with the balance sheet in, the, in Q4. But I just don't see... A catalyst for a gigantic move higher. Yeah. The gigantic move lower. To no, be it makes sense. I, I'm on the lookout for that QT hat <laughs> making a comeback. David. Uh, we'll come in. We'll come into the office and I'll bring you guys some. Yeah. I, I, 
plenty to go. That would be nice. Uh, Dave, thanks again. We always appreciate it. Dave Zervos joining me from Jeffries. So it hasn't just been a tale of two economies lately. It has been a tale of two markets. From January to June, stocks collapsed. The S&P and NASDAQ were down 20% from their highs. Then they took a U-turn. And since the June lows, all the major indices are up more than 14%. So where does Sandy Villery think we're going from here? He's co-portfolio manager of the Villery Balanced Fund. Um, some interesting cross-currents here. Sandy and Dave just told us basically he thinks more or less status quo, some drama in the meantime, but that we, we shake out kind of where we are right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with him. I mean, we've had a 17% rally off the bottom in the S&P 500, which puts us down about 10% on the year. And I do think, you know, you close the year on 4,400. So that's only three or 4% of, you know, away from where we are, you know, right now. But it, it really is a tale of two different markets. You've got the, the, the bulls that are buying growth stocks that have been beaten up that are still down 18% on the year, you know, that believe, you know, that inflation's in, uh, transitory and that commodity prices are coming down. We've seen, you know, oil go from 126 to 86. And then on the other hand, you've got the bears that are hiding in what I think is a pretty crowded value trade um, that, that believe that, uh, you know, inflation's probably here, you know, for the long run and, and, and the Fed's going to remain, you know, pretty hawkish and, and that sort of thing. So uh, it's only down 3% on the year. So, that's sort of the battle between uh, the, the value and growth uh, investors. And we'd, we'd be more uh, inclined to look at those high quality growth names and buy them on dips. Uh, you know, if, if you get a, a 3,900 or a 4,000 on the S&P 500. So sure. that's uh, that's our game plan. And I've heard, you know, obviously a lot more love lately for your sector in particular, a lot of the small caps, some of the technical traders, some of the fundamental uh, players saying that's where they expect outperformance. The stocks that you talked about last time are up anywhere from 12 to 38 percent since you mentioned them. So how are you adjusting? Yeah. So, I mean, when when you see, uh, you know, a name like Palomar that we really like last time I was on and, and it really has rallied close to 40 percent at some point, if, if we can you know, kind of understand what intrinsic values are of our, our businesses and continue to talk to management teams uh, and, and when they're well below what, what we think is, is fair value, uh, it, it's time to buy uh, some of those ideas. So I still want to buy the higher quality names that have uh, sold off a little bit uh, and, and maybe uh, if it's a company like Freeport McMoran that we like, uh, hmm. you know, yeah, it's going to be weak with with copper coming down with weakness out of China that consumes about 50 percent of copper. But, you know, longer term, when you think about uh, electric vehicles using four times the amount of copper as a regular combustion engine car and sort of what what the two to three year horizon looks like, you know, stocks like that are, are I think, a, a slam dunk to be buying, you know, in this weakness when, when everybody hates them. I notice you like Caesars as well, but I, I, I do know you're the kind of guy who's more comfortable in a hated market. So I guess to kind of put a point on it, do you think we've come uh, far too far too fast in the past couple of months? The, the market definitely feels a little bit heavy, uh, but I would uh, I, I'm, I'm always waiting with a, uh, you know, uh, trying to buy things that, that, that pull back. I will say if uh, if investors out there do have uh, names that are losing money, maybe uh, some SPACs, maybe some, you know, software as a service names that that are that you, you really don't love. Um, th this is an opportunity to maybe sell some of those weaker hmm. uh, cards in, into this uh, into this market. Uh, but otherwise, I'd be uh, I'd be buying the higher quality names. And and, and with a two to three year horizon, uh, I think I think people can make good money uh, at these levels. That's still. a great point. It answers our opening question. Do you sell? And if so, what? And you're saying maybe sell the lower quality stuff while the market is uh, is open for it, <laughs> shall we say? Yeah. Sandy, thanks for your time. We appreciate it. 
Sandy Thanks, Villery Kelly. with the Villery Balanced Fund. Coming up, a closer look at that retail sales report. The overall number was flat, but my next guest says there's something between the lines suggesting consumers are actually doing a little better than you might think. He'll explain. Plus, what can Kohl's, BJ's, and Cisco tell us about the economy and market valuations? We'll get you ready for their earnings results coming up in Earnings Exchange. We're back after this. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to The Exchange. Retail sales were flat overall in July, but core sales, excluding fuel and autos, were actually higher than expected. And my next guest knows retail as well as anybody. He says this isn't a pullback or a recession so much as a post-pandemic replenishment cycle. Let's bring in Simeon Siegel. He's BMO Capital Markets Senior Retail Analyst. Great to see you again, Simeon. Welcome. Hey, Kelly. You know, I've been following as you, you know, as you've been following the saga with Weber and the grill, you know, and all these different consumer companies. What do you think is really going on here? Yeah, it's funny. I was thinking about it this morning. You and I, I think it was, I don't know, let's call it two and a half years ago almost, we came here and we said, did COVID actually save retail? And the main premise was if you sell less and charge more, you can decide what's a healthy sale. On the other side, we've completely forgotten all of it. I mean, we're going right back to what retail has historically been of, I have inventory, I need to sell it, people aren't buying it, let me discount it. True. And what if it's as simple as people bought a lot of things? And if people bought a lot of things, maybe give them some time to digest them. And so I think that's what we're dealing with now. And I think, again, you and I have talked about this, I think we're on this replenishment arc cycle where people are looking at consumer staples versus discretionary, high income versus low income. What if we should just think about it in the context of if I've used up what I've already spent, if it's a box of cereal, I need to go back and get it, which means it's going to be inflationary. If it's a Peloton bike, I already have it. I don't, which means the discounts are going to fly and everywhere in between. That's how we're looking at the group right it now. It makes total sense to me. So I guess what inning we're in depends on what product we're talking about. But who do you think is already through the worst of this or well positioned for that you know, kind of turnover? And who's going to continue to struggle for maybe years? Yeah, it's such a great question. The way we're thinking about it is we are trained to think about company sizes in terms of annual revenues. But the consumer didn't shop in annual revenue terms last year. So for products that may have absorbed 18 months of demand in 12 months, we'd have to wait six months. If they absorb two years of demand, we have to wait two years. And so that's this idea of thinking about the replenishment curve. And so the faster you are, the quicker you'll come back. If I bought a bunch of three-wick candles from Bath & Body Works and I still haven't burned all of them, give me a chance to burn them because then I will come back. And the question is, what's the price point I'm paying when you do? And so that's why I think it behooves the companies, the management teams, to try and do this analysis and figure out for their specific product, when, are there, when is our customer going to come back? Because I think a really, you and I talk about price elasticity of demand all the time. People didn't push back when people raised price. 
Why do we think they're going to chase them here? There's no price that's going to get you to buy another grill if you already bought one. Yeah. And so from that perspective, that's why I'm trying to think duration-wise. Right now, if I was jumping on something right now, I want to think about those smaller replenishment cycles. The candles will burn faster than a pair of sneakers, which will go faster than a big ticket item. But if you and I are allowed to think longer term, if we're allowed to think about, hey, you know what? The same way that the pendulum across retail swings wildly in both directions, if we can think about companies that are set up better for the future, then you don't have to say no to a grill company. You have to decide when you think the right price is and when it'll come back and know that they're trusted with you. So I would just say the three companies that we're looking at right now that I think are doing it right, Capri, which is the parent company of Michael Kors, Versace, Jimmy Choo, has been explicit hmm. that they are not going to chase promotions for market share. That is very different. Most companies aren't saying that. If they can hold that, all we have to do is get past that cycle. So I think that's pretty compelling, and they're cheap. And then I think Bath & Body Works and Under Armour are two other companies that have emerged stronger after retail, after the pandemic. I just hope they hold on to those promotional cadence and realize that that brand equity. Very interesting. Under Armour, you know, why does that one jump out to you as one who's improved as a result here? So, right, it's funny because you and I historically have been on the other side of this conversation. So pre-pandemic, Under Armour was a cash-burning business weighed down by a whole host of fixed costs. Whether it was an expensive UCLA endorsement contract, whether it was a big Fifth Avenue plan, whether it was a connected fitness arm, they got rid of them all. So they took the pandemic. They said, you know what? We're going to see our revenues collapse anyway. Let's take advantage. Let's look inward and let's change the business. That's when we flipped our opinion. That's when we started saying, you know what? This went from a cash burning business that had never bought back a share of stock to a cash generating business that had liberated itself from a host of fixed costs and watched its gross margin go up in the meantime. Now, they have to keep that going. And that's the hard part. Because the moment you start chasing revs, the moment you say, wait a minute, market share is the name of the game, well, then you start quickly falling back into that cycle. And I really believe, as much as we wanted to say the reason that retail in North America was dead for the last 15 years, everyone attributed it to overstores, I think it was just because of overdiscount. And that's what we learned the last few years. And I think the companies that can take that and don't get stuck in the, oh, my God, no one's buying my product now. Of course, no one's buying your product now. They have six pairs of sneakers they bought the last two years. But they're going to buy them once they wear them through. And that's why I think these companies make Under Armour is in a better position than it was before. All we have to do is look at the cash flow to see that. Very, very interesting. So Under Armour, Bath and Body Works, uh, you like, and Capri Holdings. I, do you mind calling out any of the ones that you think, um, unless something, unless they change here, or maybe they're doing the things that kind of give you all the wrong signs? Yeah, so I think you called them out when we saw with the, the grill manufacturers. Obviously, you and I have talked about Peloton a lot. I think what you have to do, there's an element of, where are you where are you where are you born, right? What's the hand you're dealt with? And if you happen to be a structurally a category with slower replenishment, it's harder for you to appreciate that you might go a while without revenues. Now, I think that that was this unlock. I think that was the awakening this quarter. I think the grill manufacturers were late to that game. But you have Traeger coming out last quarter saying, by the way, our revenues next quarter are going to be down 50 percent, five zero. So I think it's a matter of like when people can wake up to this notion and say, you know what? Everyone understands that if a brand selling into a department store, if they're overselling, they just stop selling, they pull it back. But when a retailer sells to a consumer and forces it down their throat with promotion, that being unhealthy, that for some reason is harder. And that's what I want everyone. That's what I think we need to appreciate, that if the consumer is not buying right now, not necessarily because they can't. It might just be because they don't need to. They don't want to. They already have your stuff. And maybe that's the big conclusion, exactly what you said about Jimmy Choo. It can hold true elsewhere if you hold the price, if you hold the attractiveness that, you know, the analyst community like yourself will forgive you in the long run, um, even if those revenues dry up. Simeon, we'll leave it there.
Appreciate it. Good, great to check in. Great to see you. Simeon Siegel. Coming up, Apple has surged 34% from its low just two months ago, but has it run too far too fast? One analyst says, nope, it can go nearly 30% higher from here, as others are saying sell. We'll debate it. Plus, the mortgage mayhem continues with applications falling, cancellations climbing, and sentiment slumping. We have more on the fallout ahead. The exchange is back in a moment. Stay with us. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back. We're well off the lows when the Dow is down 324, uh, about half of that right now. But the Nasdaq is still leading the declines today with everybody in the red and the Nasdaq down 1.3 percent. Interestingly, a lot of the travel sector is under pressure today. Not that that really explains the major averages, but it's worth pointing out. Look at the airlines. You have them down anywhere from 2 percent for Delta, almost 5 percent for JetBlue. Cruise Line, some of the worst performers in the S&P as well, with declines of 5 to 6 percent. Remember, Carnival just said Monday's booking activity surpassed 2019 levels finally after they lifted those COVID testing requirements. And let's look at shares of Bed Bath & Beyond surging another 21% uh, back to around $25 a share. They were halted earlier today briefly for volatility. That was around 10 a.m. this morning. Coming off yesterday's heaviest volume day ever of nearly 400 million shares changing hands. Today a measly 176 million. Good enough for its second highest trading day ever. We'll have a whole lot more on this story next hour and Power Lunch. Let's get to Frank Holland now for a CNBC news update. Frank? Hey there, Kelly. Here's your news update for this hour. Extreme water shortages in the western U.S. are prompting the federal government to call for water cutbacks. The Department of the Interior is asking Arizona and Nevada to limit their water usage starting in January. It's the second year in a row that these states have been asked to take cutbacks, with Colorado in danger of, quote, a catastrophic collapse if water use is not reduced. Ukraine launching a series of military strikes in Russian-controlled Crimea. A number of blasts hit a military depot deep in Russian territory, what appears to be an attempt to target Russian supply lines and morale. And former Alaska Governor Sarah Palin, she's back in the news, advancing to the general election for Alaska's House seat following her success in last night's primary. It's been more than 10 years since she stepped down as governor of Alaska following her run for vice president on the ticket with John McCain back in 2008. Tonight on the news, what's next for Liz Cheney? Standing up to Trump cost her her job in Congress. Where does she go from here? We'll have much more on that story tonight. And Kelly, fun fact, my first job, Fairbanks, Alaska. Wow. Wait, what? You're, but you're from Philly, aren't you? Um, yeah, but my, I mean, they, they were going to give me a job in Philadelphia first out. So <laughs> I had to go to Fairbanks, Alaska, believe it or not. That's awesome. Frank, thank you very much, our Frank Holland. Still ahead, another pulse on the consumer with BJ's and Kohl's getting ready to report. Shares of Kohl's are down 34% this year, but up more than 20% in just the past month. Too soon to call it a turnaround? We'll see. Plus Cisco on deck as well. What to watch, how to position on all three. Earnings Exchange is next.
Welcome back, everybody. A big week of earnings rolls on with retailers filling the bulk of the calendar, but not just the retailers. Let's get the action, the story, and the trade on two of them and a key tech bellwether in today's edition of Earnings Exchange. And we'll start with that tech bellwether. It's Cisco with a C after the bell today. Been an underperformer. It's down 27% this year. Had a bad last quarter where it missed estimates, had supply chain issues from China, COVID lockdowns, even cited the war in Ukraine. Frank Holland joins us with the story. And Danielle Shea is Director of Options at Simpler Trading, and she joins us with our trades today. Welcome to both of you. Frank, what are you watching for Cisco? Well, Kelly, when it comes to Cisco, guidance is really the key for this company. You just mentioned it last quarter. They came out with some really soft, perhaps to dire guidance. Um, their forecast and the guidance was for revenue to decline as much as 5% this quarter, EPS to decline as much as 7% this quarter, year over year. And you just mentioned some of the price action. But this next quarter, this next fiscal year, the street is expecting growth. We're showing it to you right here, 3% revenue, 5% EPS. But those questions about China sourcing components, supply chain issues in China, they still remain as the, as the country continues to ramp up from its COVID lockdowns. And of course, the Russia-Ukraine war is still continuing. So a lot of questions there. And then on the other side, there's some rising competitors for Cisco. We're talking about Juniper and Arista, and they've had, you know, a bit of choppy stock performance themselves since that last report. But there are some questions about Cisco's ability to maintain its customer base and also uh, fend off these rising competitors that may have gained market share when simply Cisco couldn't meet the demand of all of its customers. And one more question, it's backlog. It does have a backlog. Does that backlog actually translate into revenues going forward? So a lot of questions for this report. I'm sure analysts will have a lot of questions for CEO Chuck Robbins. Yeah, and Daniel, I'm going to give it away a little bit here, but all three of these companies you think could have some upside to watch, right? That's correct, Kelly. And honestly, the reason why is just because of the way that investors have been reacting to earnings. We came into this quarter knowing that there were going to be all kinds of headwinds. But the fact of the matter is, is that a lot of this has been priced in. And what we've seen more often than not is we know earnings are not going to be great. And so when they're better than expected, the company ends up trading higher. So I think at the minimum, Cisco is a hold here. Yes, I know there's all kind of headwinds. It normally does trade lower after earnings in any case. It has about a $2.50 expected move, which would just bring you down into key support. Um, if they do happen to say something that's slightly better than expected, I would look to trade this up into overhead resistance around the $50 price point. Danielle, quick follow-up question, completely out of nowhere, except that we're about to talk about it next block. What do you do with Apple here, just staying on the tech theme? Kelly, you ride it to new highs. I know that it's crazy. I know that, you know, this move has been absolutely insane. I mean, I cannot look at this stock and say to short it in any way, shape or form. It's one of the strongest stocks in the market. I know that the rally doesn't really make sense because normally you're not going to see a stock trade trade in this direction for so long. But when a stock is 5% off of all-time highs like this, it just creates a magnet. Wow. And I mean, that chart is crazy to look at. Just a straight, perfect upward line. All right. I just had to ask you. By the way, back on the Cisco front, Cisco CEO Chuck Robbins will be on Squawk on the Street for an exclusive interview 9 a.m. Eastern tomorrow to discuss their results. You definitely don't want to miss it. So let's leave tech, turn to retail. Frank, thank you. And we'll bring in our Courtney Reagan to talk about BJ's Wholesale. They've got their results before the bell tomorrow. They've been outpacing the major averages. They're up two and a half percent this year. They had better than expected results last quarter. Courtney, what will you be watching? 
Yeah, Kelly, so just as a reminder, BJ's Wholesale is a competitor of Costco. It's one of those membership warehouse clubs. You can buy things in bulk for lower prices. They also have gasoline. So this is one of these potential inflation plays for investors because many shoppers turn to them to buy their gasoline and then do that one-stop shopping, go inside and buy their food in bulk. So we're going to be really curious about the traffic numbers and if consumers are buying more bulk items than typical to save those that money on that per unit cost. Comparable sales expected to grow 5%. I would put this in a possible winter camp for this sort of retail bifurcation that we're seeing. And lastly, remember, you pay a membership to belong, right? So you want to make it worth your while. Last quarter, the CEO was really happy with what's going on with membership fees and the retention. And Danielle, it sounds like you kind of would back that up from the, the sort of trading point of view. Yes, definitely. I agree with Courtney. I love the technical chart pattern here. And the stock has about a $6 expected move on earnings, which would really bring you up to a new high on the year. So when you're looking at the overall technicals and then you add in with that all of the different macro factors that are going on right now, I completely agree that shoppers are looking for more bargains. Uh, consumer staples is a high area of focus for me. I'm definitely more heavily invested in XLP right now, given the current current circumstances. And I like this stock to new highs. If they do happen to note any kind of disappointment, then I think it would be a buy on the dip. All right. That's about as strong as endorsement as we can get these days. So let's turn to Kohl's, which is much more of a battleground stock. Before the bell tomorrow with shares down more than 30 percent this year, but up big in the past month, they did uh, report a massive miss in their first quarter, cut their profit outlook. Courtney, what are we looking for here? Yeah, Kelly, I am a little concerned about Kohl's going into this print. Look, they serve a consumer that's a little bit more under pressure, a lower or middle income consumer, potentially the same consumer that shops at TJX. I believe there's a lot of overlap there. And there was some disappointment in some of those sales trends today, to say the least, and the forecast going forward. I'm worried that the traffic that is being attracted by the Sephora partnership and the Amazon partnership won't be enough to offset the traffic declines from those that would go to Kohl's to buy apparel, because we know that's been an area that people haven't been shopping. I'm concerned about Pacer.ai's traffic report. They say that Kohl's traffic in store is down about 12.5% from pre-pandemic levels. So I think the company is going to have to give us a lot of details on what's going on in the quarter. But I think there's some points for concern here, even though the stock is already very depressed. Yeah, Danielle, what makes you, I don't know if you would take the other side of it, but what do you see? think is playing out in the tea leaves here? So here's the thing, Kelly, is I completely agree with Courtney. Those are all issues. And what we've seen in the other retailers, especially Target and Walmart, they've noted that their consumers are heading more towards their grocery products. And of course, Kohl's doesn't have that. I think that the Kohl's executives have been doing a really good job trying to get people in store. And I think that that's the issue right now, in addition to the fact that consumers aren't spending money as much on apparel um, and home goods. But the reason why I actually like this one for a little bit more upside is just because we know the news is bad. We know that it's not looking good. They've already had a bad earnings report last quarter. They've already pre-announced additional negative news over the course of the last quarter. But we've seen that low hold. The stock has continued trading higher and it has about 10% high short interest. So with stocks like this, what can often happen is they may report earnings and those earnings were expectedly bad and that ends up resulting in short sellers having to cover. So <laughs> ironically, I do like this stock 
because of the way that earnings has been playing out this quarter. And I think you could at least trade it to June highs, but it's not because I think the business is doing phenomenally. All right. That's what Shea said. We love it. Feel ready for all these reports. Thank you both very much, Danielle Shea and Courtney Reagan, wrapping up earnings exchange for us. Still ahead, high gasoline prices have pushed people more into electric vehicles, but they're running into some fueling issues of their own. The problem with charging stations and the company that's standing out as a bright spot. As we head to break, check out shares of Danbury. They're just resumed trading after a brief halt. They're sharply higher now by 11% on a Bloomberg report that the oil and gas exploration company is exploring options, including a potential sale. We've reached out. We'll let you know from the company if and when we hear more. Denberry, again, ticker DEN, up 11%. We're back after this. Welcome back. A lot more EVs are hitting the road, and the industry should be getting a huge boost from Biden's climate and health care bill. But driver dissatisfaction with charging stations is also on the rise. Phil Lebeau is here with that story. Phil? Kelly, this is a survey that's been done uh, for some time by J.D. Power, and the latest one shows that when it comes to public EV chargers, well, the people who are going to use them are not terribly satisfied. In fact, the latest report uh, from J.D. Power shows that there is a lot of dissatisfaction with these public chargers for a variety of reasons. In fact, they do this on a regular basis. This is the lowest score they've had in some time. The latest results, 11,554 EV and plug-in hybrid electric owners were surveyed after they went to a public charging station. Guess what? 20% said they didn't even charge their vehicle. Why? Well, the main problem was chargers were inoperable. They weren't working. Uh, that's not good. So the bottom line is this. Public chargers, spotty performance in terms of what this survey found. They did, however, see that people give high marks, the best marks, to the, the Tesla supercharger network and to DC fast charging. Those areas where there is a DC fast charger get much higher marks than the standard charge. Take a look at ChargePoint, Blink, EVgo. These are the EV charging stocks, if you will. And yes, they've come back with the market over the last couple of months. But overall, Kelly, it'll be interesting to see how this shakes out over the next several years because you've got the Biden administration saying, hey, here's $5 billion. We're going to work with the states to add more of these public chargers. But if they're not increasing in speed, if they're not working, you can see why people will be like, well, what's the point here? Right. I'm just going to charge at home. Can and it's really going to slow down the EV adoption in terms of people using EVs for long trips. Sort of a dumb question, but when we say public EV charging, it's almost like if we called them public gasoline stations. You know, like, is the distinction between right. their offerings from the likes of, say, the Tesla network, which I know a lot of people no, obviously no, what, rely on. No, no, what we're on. talking about here, Kelly, what we're talking about here, Kelly, is that most people who have an EV, they do the bulk of their charging at home. When we refer to public chargers, we're talking about, let's say you are out and you pull into a drugstore, sure. you're running low, you need to charge up your vehicle. That's a public charging station. The Tesla supercharger network is a public charging station. It's right now just for Teslas, but they're going to make it so it's uh, accessible for all makes and models. So when they say public, what they're referring to is your ability to go to an office building, a supermarket, a drugstore and you plug in there while you are inside because I see them everywhere you know they do seem like they're proliferating sure there, there are more that are being added and the ones that are most popular no surprise the DC fast chargers look people don't want to sit there for a half hour or 45 minutes for a partial charge they want to do it as quickly as possible they want it to be as an experience similar to what we are used to at a gas station 
We're a long ways from that happening, but the DC fast chargers, that's what people want. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great point, uh, especially as more and more of these cars fill the road. Phil, thank you very much, our Phil LeBeau. Coming up, Apple is now only 5% off its all-time highs. One technician is saying it's time to, quote, sell it all. Is the run really done? We'll debate that next. Welcome back, everybody. Shares of Apple have had a monster run. They're up 15% in the past month, up 33% from the June lows just barely two months ago, and sitting just 5% below the all-time highs. But there's a growing division on what's next for the shares. Technician Carter Worth saying they're a sell here, while Credit Suisse just initiated coverage with a buy in the 201 price target. Wedbush is hiking their target to 220. Joining me now is Dan Ives. He's behind the Wedbush call, of course. Uh, Dan, it's great to have you. And um, I mean, I can understand why people look at the chart and go, okay, maybe this has come back a little too quickly here. What do you think? Look, I think it all comes down to checks. I mean, our checks in Asia this week are showing firm demand in terms of going into iPhone 14. So you have 90 million units. That's flat with iPhone 13. You put that together with the services. I think this is a stock that's going to have a two in front of it. So what do you make of, you know, we take the clock back a couple months. Apple's in the 130s. We're talking about China. We're talking about, I mean, why has sentiment been so whipsawed by this, uh, in, for this stock in particular? Look, I think it's really been a Hall of Fame performance by Cook. And, and you look what Cupertino's done, how they've navigated the China shutdown in, in April and May, and, and ultimately really come out, now going to hit the iPhone target, where we expect to launch first week in September. And that's really the demand story. I mean, despite the macro clouds that we're seeing, demand's holding firm and more and more consumers are going to the higher end iPhone. You put that together, ultimately it was Armageddon expectations and, and you're really starting to see come out in terms of demand going to next year looking strong. I guess maybe what I would sort of suggest to you is why is it trading so high beta? Apple feels like the kind of company at this maturity point that should be almost boring, like watching paint dry, you know, that it's such a behemoth. And it's almost surprising to me that it's still the bellwether for the market, that it can still go down, you know, whatever it was at the lows and still then be leading us back to the upside. It's it's more volatile, I guess I'm trying to say, than I would expect. And I wonder if that reveals some kind of of lingering weakness or doubts about it. Yeah, Kelly, I think it hits on a great point. I think it really comes down to the services. I mean, I think that's the big divisiveness in terms on the street. If we go back to pre-pandemic services valuation, street's probably given $300 billion, $350 billion. I believe that that's ultimately worth today $1.2 to $1.5 I think that's really the debate. It's going to continue to sort of be a divisive name in terms of where it should trade. But I think services, that re-rating that you're seeing – that golden install base that Cupertino continues to mine, even with softness in the macro, I think that's what comes out of our checks and valuation, which is why you know, we believe this is a stock that ultimately goes back above $3 trillion. Yeah, and maybe, maybe people would rather they're still a high growth name than a boring one that's kind of become a, a value stock. What is this? Is this a value stock or is it a growth stock? Look, I think it's almost the, it's sort of the services piece is growth. The hardware in terms of iPhone cycle, I think you're starting to see more maturity. But I do believe the maturity is overstated. I mean, if I look, you have 240 million of a billion iPhones that have not upgraded in three and a half years. 
And we believe 30% in China are going through a window of an upgrade opportunity. I think that that's really the debate. I think that's where many you know, maybe sort of get the story wrong is that the maturity, I think, is overstayed relative to the pent-up demand. And ultimately, you know, Cook continues to have that golden touch and, and really almost superhero-like in terms of what he's done here, getting through the COVID shutdown. And keeping a company like this young for what is that, like Pinocchio or Benjamin Button or something? I don't know the right analogy, but it's very impressive for a company of this size. Dan, thanks for your time today. Thank you. Dan Ives joining me from Wedbush. Still ahead, mortgage applications dropped again last week, despite rates kind of down on the downside, falling downward, she's trying to say. In fact, over the past two months, the rate on the 30-year has fallen more than 12%, and that volatility could be the new normal. We'll explore what it means for buyers and sellers in this market next. Welcome back to The Exchange. One more thing before we go. Mortgage demand falling yet again last week despite slightly lower rates. You can see we're around 5.5%. Demand, though, is at a 22-year low. Diana Olick is here to break down those numbers. Diana? Well, Kelly, it's just another data point in this string of them this week that indicate the housing market is in recession. And that was the call from the home builders on Monday. Mortgage demand last week fell yet again, as you said, and continues at this 22-year low. The drop in home buyer demand is just adding to the refi woes. Mortgage applications to buy a home fell 1% for the week, down 18% from a year ago. This is the average rate on the 30-year fix, dropped from 5.47 to 5.45. It's off the recent highs, but still way up from a year ago when it was right around 3%. That, in addition to inflation, still high home prices, and general concern about the economy are all keeping home buyers on the sidelines. And with rates remaining high, there are precious few who can benefit from a refi. Those applications lost another 5% for the week, down 82% from a year ago. Rates started this week kind of flat, but they made a pretty sharp move higher this morning, up 19 basis points, according to Mortgage News Daily, as bond yields rise across the board ahead of the Fed minutes. And we know that these uh, mortgage rates follow the yield on the 10-year Treasury. Kelly? A 22-year low in mortgage demand, Diana. And yet I have people in my neighborhood and my town still talking about how they think the market is pretty tight. Yeah, the market is still tight when it comes to supply and demand. There's still demand out there and still very little supply. It's the affordability challenge and the concern about, am I making a huge purchase now that prices might depreciate or perhaps I might not be as steady in my job as I thought I was? That's the concern out there among consumers. Anything you gleaned from Home Depot and Lowe's? Well, so they had strong earnings, but I will say that the forecasts I'm seeing for home remodel and renovation in 2022 are not looking quite as bright. And that is because of this slower home sales, people taking out fewer permits. So they're working on the backlogs from Home Depot and Lowe's going forward. I don't think you're going to see it quite as strong. Kelly. Yeah, it makes sense. And that's it. I will still say I still think they're going to they're going to get some demand for a. Uh, for years from these new homeowners, but I, I take everyone's point, not not the same as when they first buy. Diana, thank you for now. We appreciate it, our Diana Olick. And that does it for The Exchange today, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From their innovative practice facility 
to unmatch views from the fairway. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 